0: Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Assistant Professor of Management, Dr. Carlos Baldo. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Now, you were born in Texas, but moved to Venezuela when you were just four months old. Yep. So you spent a bulk of your life there.
1: Yes. uh, I think I think it was the first nine years. Then we moved to France. Uh, yeah, no, even before that. Yeah, my father is a military. He retired, um, and and he won a scholarship to study in France a couple of years. So, as any military family, you know, you moved for everyone. We yeah. lived there a couple of years.
0: And then um, after France, you moved back to Venezuela. Is we that moved right? back
1: to Venezuela. Yes.
0: And so, what was it? What was it like for you um, growing up there? And then now you obviously live here in Colorado, but what was life like growing up in Venezuela?
1: Well, we move a lot. I mean, as a part of the career of my father, I mean, we, we live in oil fields uh, when we went back to, to Venezuela. So um, then we live in the cities, I mean, mostly Caracas. Uh, back then it was maybe three, four millions nowadays five, seven, perhaps. Well, there's been a lot of migration the last few years, but that's a different conversation.
2: <laughs> so after growing up in Venezuela, what made you decide to pursue a career in business management? And I'm excited to get into kind of all the facets and industries you've been in when it comes to business. But what was it about business specifically that drew you in and you knew this is where I yeah, want to go?
1: I did my undergrad in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. in in management uh and there it's mandatory to do an internship so i did my internship in a bank i did loan underwriting for like six months when i finished my internship they offered me a job as a uh, business developer so basically selling financial products and one of my clients in the bank offered me a job to be a purchasing agency in the U.S. for them, they were builders, so they need somebody that was able to buy things in the states and ship it there. And I said, "Well, I mean, it will be easy f- for them to hire me because I, you know, was have the, have the two passports, so it was easy for me to travel all the time. No issue, no issues with a visa or things like that. So that was the first was that gig. I mean, I did some other things before. I work, yeah, some other the stuff too." <laughs>
0: And what about business that interests you? I mean, you could have gone into a million different fields. Why business?
1: Uh, it's quite interesting. I mean, I think at that moment it was kind of like the um, the degree. I mean, to be genuine, in, is is there was the 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 first available degree on uh, the school that I went. I mean, uh. uh Maybe I didn't mention it before, but when I I, I finished high school in Venezuela, I went to one year of law school. And law school was not as good as uh, as I I planned. Um, So what I did is I withdraw from law. I mean, there law school is different. You go from day one to law school, not here. Like you need to get a degree and then go to law school. Uh, So what I did, I took kind of like a break. It came to the States. Uh, and I was living in Orlando, Florida for like a semester and went to UCF for a tiny bit. I did some econ courses, didn't went that good. Um, I clean airplanes and, uh, uh, as a psychic job. Um, and then when I went back to Venezuela, business degree was one of those that the school was offering. So it was easy to get in. And, and you obviously
0: it. liked it enough to continue your education. You have your PhD. So you yeah, figured out you uh, had this passion for it in the end. But
1: but, uh, but I'm, I'm not a traditional academic in the sense that, I mean, I, I work in the private sector. I decide to get into academia later on. Um, I mean, I graduated from my undergrad degree in 98 and I started my PhD in 2010 Yes, 2010, so there was some time in there uh, that uh, I was working in the private sector. So.
2: Will you talk to us a little bit more about your work in the private sector? Because in our previous conversations, I found it really interesting, all of the different industries that you've kind of woven in and yeah. out of. And, and I can only imagine the experiences that you've had really help now that you're teaching in the classroom when you're talking to students. So can you talk to us uh, about that private sector experience?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, I came to the States to do that purchasing agent. I was going back and forth between Venezuela and the States. Then my client or the my, yeah, the owner of the company that I was working at uh, doing purchasing said, hey, do you have experience on treasury? Why you don't stay with us a couple months here in Venezuela doing a loan, a loan a package for the company? And at that moment, they get rid of the treasurer of the company. Uh, they appoint me as a treasurer. So I was having an apartment here in Florida and, a, and another one down there. Um, then the owners of that company split and I knew, uh, my head will be one of the ones chopping. Uh, So (laughs) I decided to, to basically make the call first. Uh, and I, I started to make contacts here in the States and I got two choices to work. One was in a bank and the other one was in a paper company. Uh, I decided to go with a paper company. So I work as an accountant for them for almost three years, then uh, I work in the dot com industry in the early stages uh, for an app that uh, would never make millions. But uh, it was a business model based on pictures online, but we used to take pictures on clubs for people having fun on while well, you know they're hanging out in clubs and things like that. And our business model was more to sell advertisement to to liquor uh, uh, companies. Uh, we never realized the other aspect that companies like Facebook uh, identify a few years later. Uh, it was a great experience, and we got into buying a lot of uh, domains by bulk. We used to buy thousands of domains and sell those domains uh, later on. So it was like you buy at, at a cent, and then you sell it for dollars, $3, dollars ten dollars thousands depends, you know. Uh, We still have some of those. (laughs) Um, And um, then from there, I went to work for another company doing accounts receivables. Then after that, I did accounting support for Latin America for Philips. That is the company, the biggest company that I've worked in the medical devices uh, business unit. And then the same paper company that hired me years ago, they bring me back as an accountant uh, and a controller.
0: And how has your time in the private sector helped you become um, the professor you are today?
1: I think the students like the experiences that, that you you bring to the classroom. And, and that's something that a lot of the students consider invaluable in the sense that uh, Sometimes in business you got a lot of theories that we explain in the textbooks and in the traditional lectures. But then when the students see that you have what I tend to call wounds of war, uh, they 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 give you a sense of legitimacy of your knowledge. So uh, and that's the the combination that I try to bring into the classroom.
0: And I know um, you know growing up in Venezuela, you bounced around a lot. Um, you also uh, went to school in Spain.
1: Yes, I did my PhD in Spain.
0: And so, being this world traveler, uh, what what lessons there have you have you learned that you take in the classroom? Like, when a, what what do you teach? What lessons are coming up what over and over you- again?
1: Well, I think the first big thing that I always say to my students is that when you travel a lot, you also give up the the right value to the things that he, that you have here at home. And that's something that you have to reinforce the kids. I mean, we live in a great country with, with a lot of beautiful things and also with some, you know, things that are not that pleasant. But, but when you compare to others, you definitely give more value to the things that you have here. Uh, the second part is, is being able to understand that context and culture give a lot of differences in the business world. And the way we do business here in the States is way different than maybe you do it in Spain. Uh, more in the, in the uh, face-to-face dealing or negotiation. Uh, at the end of the day, everybody's looking for a good deal, but it's the way or the forms.
0: You say at the end of the day, everybody's looking for a good deal, which essentially is business, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big piece of it is money and currency. And can you... Go into detail about uh, Venezuela and you know how, what it's like for businesses there and how um, currency changes over time.
1: Well yeah, in the last uh, perhaps 20 years, Venezuela faced uh, uh, changes in the government, uh, mainly between two presidents, uh, Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, and uh, both uh, force or push a socialist model. And a country that used to be more aligning to the style of the way we do business here in the states went into a different direction. So in these twenty years, a lot of multinationals have left Venezuela. Uh, still, some remain, but most of the multinationals, including companies like Procter and Gamble, for instance, they only leave a manufacturing operation, but they they decide to move their executive out. Uh, currency? Well, they have. Uh, uh, for almost 20 years, what we call a currency exchange control. That is a weird thing to explain here in the States. So you could have all the local currency to buy a million dollars, but the government will not sell you a million dollars. So the government decide uh, who do they sell hard currency. So you are kind of uh, in chains of your local currency. Um, and uh, however, I mean... I haven't been in Venezuela in the last maybe four or five years, but one reality is that you could still go to places in Venezuela and you will say, oh, but I thought things were really, really bad in here. And it depends where you go and with who do you go, because the realities are to extremes, you know? I mean, there's people that live in Venezuela that for them mm, it's business as usual. But I could say that my parents yesterday were four hours without power, and they live in a big city, like two million people cities. So you said like how is that possible? You know, people uh have four hours, no power. <laughs> so I feel like you can find those kind of extremes
2: anywhere, you know, where depending upon even what part of the United States you're in. You know, I grew up out in Kentucky and I would say living out there is quite different of an experience than living here in Colorado and Agree. you know, so you can find those differences, I feel like everywhere you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, You're good. right.
2: Well, I want to talk just a little bit um, about your research. So, I live here at CMU. We really follow the teacher-scholar method, where our yeah. faculty members are in the classroom teaching our students, but we do value research. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of your research is really interesting. So, um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about what exactly is your research and what have you learned from that?
1: Yeah, my my main area of research is executive recruitment. Uh, so, in other words, uh, what is commonly known headhunters. And, and my main area is to understand the relationships between the three parties that usually get involved in a search process, so a headhunter, a candidate, and a client, and, uh, and what happened on that dynamic. Um, I think one of the main things that I have identified is that although most of the theory argue that the headhunters are agents. Uh, towards the end of the process when there's only one last standing candidate, uh, the headhunters somehow shift their their agency and they become dual agents because they're trying to mediate and to close a deal because they get so close to... Uh, keep in mind that headhunters, also some may be um, contingent while others are uh, more like a retainer, uh, they get paid regardless of the effort. They still want to close the deal, because in headhunting you are basically like bullfighting. You are you are evaluated based on your last uh, uh, time in the in the road. So um, that was one of the things. The other thing that that we have found out is about the relationship. Depending of the type of relationship, the outcomes uh, in the process may go in one way or another. Um, what we have find out is that people that tend to have more than one interaction with headhunters, they know right away that headhunters are no friends. They're doing a the work, they're getting paid for, and they are just some sort of like a bridge connecting to. Um, that's some of the main things. And there's some other areas of research that I'm involved doing things on emerging markets. Um... Recently, I published um, a paper with one of my two of my colleagues here from CMU uh, on Huawei, the the Chinese phone company, and how uh, they internationalized in Venezuela during these last twenty years. And at the beginning of our research, we thought that uh, Huawei got into the Venezuelan business because, you know, China, socialist Venezuela, and the reality is that these guys of Huawei. They were even working in Venezuela as a market way before this last 20 years. So these companies are no necessarily so politically driven as we think.
0: And through your research, have you found that what employees are looking for is a lot different than it used to be? I mean, when you think of, um, you know, are, are people going to different places based on salary or the destination?
1: Well, well yes, we, I think we did, we did um a report here in Mesa County to analyze what employers were looking for. Uh, that's a republic, uh, report that is is uh, is published uh, and available online. and And one of the things that we find out is that sometimes oh, employers tend to hire the wrong individuals because they, they believe that, let's say that they're looking for somebody to do an entry- level job, where a college degree is not needed. And employers tend to go hire the person with a college degree thinking that that will be better. But in reality, that is not true. I mean, uh, they hire somebody that may have more skills, but that person get frustrated in the short term will leave. Uh, Yes, then on regards to skills and the people, why they do in salary, um, things have changed. I mean, I think my generation was more driven by uh, salary first, and then we talk about everything else. Uh, Nowadays, the new generations are considering some other elements, Um, even the style of life or some of the values of the company that they work for. Um, You know, yeah, I think that those are the main two things that people are considering nowadays. Yeah. Cause
0: when I think of millennials, I think that lifestyle is such a big part. You know, when you look at jobs around the country and we're seeing this, um, great resignation throughout the U S yeah. and it's, you know, it's not just, oh, can I have, uh, enough to, to live, but it's like, will I enjoy my life?
1: Yeah. But uh, keep in mind that we, we there is, in the, when we talk about my millennials, uh, The one thing was what we researched five years ago, 10 years ago, and we're starting to find out at least some uh, stream of researchers, they're saying that they are more of the same. So there is a group of researchers that are starting to indicate that the early findings about these new generations uh, were completely different than the X, and and they, they are starting to share more things. So and perhaps... COVID have triggered some of those changes. But um, yes, they're still different, but there is a lot of overlapping too.
2: So earlier you mentioned that you just did some recent research and you worked with two CMU faculty members. Do you often work with other business oh, yeah. department faculty members? I, and what is that like?
1: Um, well, I got great colleagues here. I mean, that's one of the main reasons. I, I tend to believe that I move for the people and know for the organizations. I mean, and I have found out great individuals to work here at TMU. Um, I'm working right now with Steve Norman in a virtual leadership project. Um, I'm working right now with Chen McCain on uh, like five different projects. Uh, I'm working a recent one with uh, Dr. Lee in finance about crypto And effects. I mean, you definitely have to sit down and find out commonalities and say, "Let's do it." Now, they they have you know the benefits because you have a lot of people put in effort, but at the same time, sometimes you get co-authors that are, you know, so driven by agenda that, I mean, uh, we're not an R one institution. We're a teaching institution, and that's a priority. And sometimes. When you need to tell the people, hey, hold on a second, my my priority are my classes. And I do research because I'm having fun. So that's something that sometimes it's complex.
2: Yeah, finding that balance, like you said, between being a teacher and in the classroom first. But Mm -hmm. research adds to, I would expect, what you're then teaching in the classroom. And that, like you said, that camaraderie between you and your other department uh, faculty members.
1: There is always uh, trying to find out uh, ideas and who's going to be leading things. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't think... Maybe I have two co-authors that I could say that were equally balanced on the efforts, while some others are project that you take, okay, and you know you're going to be the one leading that effort until the end, and the other people will have smaller contributions, and that's part of the game, too, you know? Yeah.
0: You've been here uh, at CMU for five years five. now. Yep. And you've already... Um, I would say, have a really great reputation on campus. Um, <laughs> a lot of faculty have mentioned your name and students I've worked with are always um, giving you applause. And I think one of those things that is true is that you focus on your students outside the classroom as well. And I know that there's a a book club <laughs> that you created yeah. on campus. That,
1: that is a small club. It's not like huge. I mean, we are no more than seven, 10 students. Okay. Uh, hopefully... We keep it that way because the reading club, when it goes too many people, the meetings are terrible. I mean, um, but uh, yes, I think the the club is more like, a, I don't know. I think I like to read and uh, finding on a campus people that like to read uh, is easy. So um, that was no brainer, honestly. Uh, but yes, I engage a lot in campus activities I tend to lunch with my students uh, four days a week, if not three. Um, I am a cafeteria guy. Uh, maybe that's why, I mean, <laughs> I'm not in a good shape. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I tend to eat with them. I think that that give you the possibility for them to see that you're a human being like them, that you have issues, that you have problems, that uh you are equal to them you know you eat the same food um and uh there is more common things that differences on between us and 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 i enjoy it i mean uh and also it's convenient i mean the truth is that i usually teach in the afternoon so i know at 12 o'clock i go and have lunch i mean today it was a little bit early because i have uh, this commitment <laughs>
2: So it sounds like you're really driven by relationships, whether that's with students or other faculty yeah. members. Would you say that's one of the reasons you became a professor? Because you obviously got your undergraduate degree, had some private sector experience, earned your master's and doctoral degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of led you into teaching? Was it that connection with humans or was it something else?
1: Um, well, definitely there have to be. You, you, you need to be somehow an individual that enjoy to interact with others. I used to use the argument or the element of saying, like, we professors are entertainers and comedians. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, somebody that I respect a lot, uh, Angelo Denisian Tulane, said to me, No, no, I don't like that part of comedians. I buy you the entertaining part. And, and that's what you are. I mean, uh, I, this is a line for somebody else. Was, I think he's currently a dean. Even Oxford or Cambridge, Maurer Guillen, he said, we're in the business of creating experiences uh, to the students to learn. We're not in the business of teaching anymore. And said, well, how is that? Well, because the truth is that there is so many content available online that some there are some master lectures that sometimes you get into YouTube and you could get it like an amazing way. But but what we create on a classroom or online um, is an experience of them. Unveiling and learning, you know, in in their own way, in their own form. And we just try to guide them. So, yeah, I definitely recharge a lot interacting with people.
2: I love hearing that, that it's about creating an experience. And then hopefully that way the material sticks with our students more so than if they just watched a video online or read an article where they have that experience and interaction with you and other students.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And remember that, I mean, there are some domains in business that... You require the students to memorize, but there's most of those contents they will not memorize. we know that in a year or two, when students leave, I am firm believer that they leave with a backpack with tools. And, and as soon as they get their first job, they unpack that, okay, what I have here, oh, I am able to use this tool for this. And, and they will remember what you, tool to use. As friendly was that embar- I mean and experience for them. If they were not satisfied with a class, most likely they will oh they they will hate that tool. So they, w- they, will not they won't want use to that use tool it. that won't stay yeah, in the backpack. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love that. I think that's great. I don't I don't know if I've heard that before. You're just giving them tools for their backpack. Yeah. Well wow. that's great. I use
1: a lot of backpack uh experience. Or examples of my class, I always use one of the Dora, the Explorer, and the backpack. The students look at me and said, yes, I have a kid. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it's great. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Baldo. I hope those listening have some more tools in their toolbox to leaving here today. Thanks
1: so much. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.